Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and today I'm not joined by fellow co-host Joe Wolfond. He's away celebrating his anniversary, so hopefully his Pacers being eliminated hasn't ruined that romantic time off for him. Wolf will be back next week, but in the meantime, I'm thrilled to be joined by a special guest co-host this week. Honestly, she's been one of basketball Twitter's breakout stars this year. She's an NBA culture writer and archivist whose great work you can find at the Neon Playbook, as well as a co-host on the awesome Dishes and Dimes podcast. She's also a HuffPost Canada contributor who you can follow on Twitter, and I really recommend you do, at Carmelo Drama. Her name is Yasmin Duale, and she joins me now. Yasmin, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. Uh, happy to have you. Like I said, I think uh, you're, you've been a great follow on Twitter since we started following each other, and you've got great insights into the game and pop culture. Uh, before we get into talking basketball, I did want to shout out a really important piece you contributed to HuffPost Canada in the wake of that video footage of Masai Ujiri being harassed, honestly, by that fraudster of an Alameda County Sheriff's deputy. The piece is titled, We Shouldn't Need Success Like Masai Ujiri's to Be Above suspicion in white spaces. I want people to read it, but in the meantime, if they haven't, what can you tell people about it or what do you want people to know about that piece? First of all, I want to thank the editor, um, Nicholas, for reaching out to me to write that piece. I think after I saw that video, which was like way worse than I thought it was going to be, like I think I anticipated kind of a skirmish, maybe a back and forth, but it was just so, he was clearly just victimized in that moment. And I was kind of just inspired to compare it to my own experiences. And I was encouraged to talk about my own experiences and how I related to it, even as someone who's just, you know, a working class student, like I was able to relate to Masai in that moment so much. And I just wanted to elaborate on that. And I found that a lot of people could relate to it where it doesn't really matter whether you're literally wearing a suit about to accept a gold trophy, <laughs> you're still seen a certain way. You're still, there's like this sense where everyone feels they have an authority over you. And, you know, hopefully Masai scrolled past that piece. <laughs> whether he scrolled past it or, or anyone else, like I said, I do hope that anyone listening who hasn't checked it out yet does, because I do think it's a really important piece. And, you know, the way this week's episode worked out, I, I think it's important as well, just because, you know, as you know, it's a day after many NBA players from, George Hill to Chris Paul uh-huh. to LeBron James, among others, you know, understandably didn't want to talk about basketball mm-hmm. after the same, you know, horrific, really angering scene that's played out all too often, played out again over the weekend. You know, cops in Wisconsin shot an unarmed black man, Jacob Blake, seven times in the back when they were supposed to be responding to a domestic, I believe, or, or a fight between two women that he was apparently trying to break up. And, and was getting back in his vehicle to check on his children who were in the vehicle when he was shot by police. Mm-hmm. And kudos to the Bucks organization for yeah. releasing a statement, you know, about something that happened in their city. So that was really classy of them. Yeah, and, and George Hill had some really poignant comments yesterday too that I think hopefully brought it home for a lot of people that, yeah, like just because these guys are playing and, you know, uh, fulfilling their professional duties and trying to bring awareness to it in a different way it doesn't mean that they don't still have their eye on the ball and and LeBron if anyone saw his post-game comments last night just genuinely seemed to be really conflicted about you know his presence in the bubble while also trying to do all of the things he's trying to do off the court Uh, I should add Jacob Blake he survived the shooting I think he's currently in the ICU but you know it shouldn't take victims of police brutality dying for people to get angry or to be sparked to action or to demand justice so again You know, Wolfon and I have mentioned it before, but uh, just to encourage all of our listeners, wherever you are, Canada or the U.S., because um, nowhere is immune, do what you can, whether that's donating your time or your money, whether that's showing up to a protest, demanding more of your elected officials, just don't let up or let the moment fade because um, we we just can't afford to let it happen. 100%, yeah. 
we can we can talk some ball and some playoff basketball. I know you have a lot of thoughts. One place we can start since you know we're sitting here on Tuesday afternoon is some of the playoff action that happened Monday. I, I don't know if you got a chance to watch the Lakers absolutely curb stomp the Blazers yeah. last night on Mamba Day, but man, it, it really kind of feels like the Blazers maybe missed their chance to make this a real series in game yeah. three. A lot of people were commenting that uh, it seems that they're just completely out of gas. Like they're not playing with the same energy or speed that they were. And it makes sense because they've been playing like game sevens <laughs> for the entire bubble now. And also Dame dislocated his finger. So I'm, I feel like that's actually bothering him more than he wants to say. Um, he's not pulling up from 30 plus feet like he was. He's allowing Alex Caruso to get the better of him. So I, I feel like the Blazers kind of just fizzled out there and the Lakers just had that extra oomph, it being Mamba Day. Uh, to just kind of just go for the kill, so to speak, <laughs> and to just kind of get the Blazers while they're vulnerable. So I think the series is effectively over. You know, I, I want to give Dame, like, uh, it's hard to doubt him, you know, because I've seen him just overcome so much in the playoffs, but I feel like it is over. Yeah, and, and now he's got that knee issue too. I think he's undergoing the MRI for it. You mentioned, like, Dame not pulling up really um, with the finger injury. And then on the other end, it, when Dame's not pulling up from 30 feet, but LeBron is oh my and God. splashing, like that's a problem for the Blazers. Yeah, when LeBron is rolling, he's he's just effectively unstoppable because he yeah. has that range that just comes and goes. He's not really the most reliable long-range shooter. He's still someone you need to guard at three. But when he's pulling up from that distance, like you just got to hope and pray. Like There's nothing really you can do. Yeah, and he really does look like he's in that kind of, I mean, when in normal times, he would go into that, what would he call it, the zero dark 23 yeah. mode, where he'd like go, he'd go silent on social media. I mean, he's not doing that now, but in terms of his like on the court play, it seems like he's really in that playoff mode. Like he just looks extremely locked in. Mm. Uh, I, I mean, we mentioned that game three, the Blazers let kind of get away. I guess we shouldn't say it that way because it, it was more like LeBron just took that game over and, and there was no one that was going to beat him that night, mm -hmm. it seemed like. It's kind of funny that he has to kind of play with this intensity in the first round. Like, I don't think he wants to. He's been, I've been saying, like, it looks like LeBron's holding back. Like, it, I've seen LeBron when he's rolling. Like, it does not look like he's himself right now. It seems like he wants to save that energy for the dogfights that are going to be the second round in the Western Conference Finals. But yeah, he had to really turn it up uh, just for the first round. So I, I don't think he's going to turn it back down at this point you've seen lebron rolling what do you live in toronto or something <laughs> <laughs> yeah like ptsd right there when yeah, he's pulling up yeah. long range i'm like oh i've seen this before it's over <laughs> yeah i know it was, a lot of people were tweeting actually about how it was like they were getting lebronto vibes from the way he was just kind of toying trending. with the blazers last yeah. night and yeah i was like you know what can we not do this again yeah. like, trigger uh, warning <laughs> yeah there was a couple other games last night or yesterday the bucks steamrolled the magic after it was kind of close throughout uh, I saw you were tweeting a bit through that game as well. So did anything stick out for you from that game? Because, I mean, the, the final score was not really indicative of how close that game was. And like, I, I don't know, they're up 3-1 now. They're rolling, I guess. But there's still like some sense of vulnerability with that Bucks team. And, and I don't yeah. know if you could also put your finger on it. I follow a couple of uh, Bucks fans who cover the team. It's hard to believe that I would have been checking in on a Bucks Magic series. Like I completely anticipated not checking in on it at all. But I've been tuning in like every now and again, and I'm noticing that they don't really look like themselves. And that's what fans are saying, and that's what people covering the team are saying. Like I feel like the Lakers just uh, were clicking on all cylinders the other night, where it looked like they were their dominant regular season selves in the playoffs. But the Bucks have not found that rhythm yet. 
And, um, you know, Chris Middleton has not been himself. Eric Bledsoe, who had COVID, <laughs> is not himself, understandably so. Do not look like themselves. It seems that right now it's, it's Giannis and a collection of kind of disjointed role players when we understand the Bucks to be kind of this cohesive single cell unit. So hopefully they, they find that rhythm because I they they will need it versus the Heat because the Heat are also a team where their role players are on a string. So it'll be interesting. This struggles that they're having in the first round make the uh, Heat series more of a toss up than I thought it would be. Yeah, so I've actually been like, I've been high on this Heat team all year. It's something co-host Joe Wolfine's kind of like teased me about all year because um, people think I just like have an obsession with the whole Heat culture thing and Pat Riley, which I do. I, I'm a very big admirer of the, the organization Pat Riley's built. But in general, I think this specific team like is pretty uniquely qualified to trouble the Bucks, And we saw that a bit in the regular season games, um, especially pre-bubble. Even just beyond like the, the strategy wise where you can look at it and say, okay, they can... They can shoot the ball and punish Milwaukee's defense. They've got Bam, who's a very unique Giannis, maybe not stopper, but defender. And, you know, they've got Jimmy, who is a pull-up creator, who can kind of take advantage of the soft spots in Milwaukee. Like, they've kind of got it all. But even outside of, like, the basketball reasons why I think they can match up, that Heat team is the type of team where, like, you need to be mentally strong to survive a long series against that Heat team because those guys are coming for your necks. Like, yeah, they're, yeah. They, they are this, like, grimy physicality too. yeah they're so physical and they've got a swagger about them and and yeah i just think you need a type of like mental strength in addition to pure physical strength to match up with them in a long series and i don't know maybe maybe i'm just reading too much into the buck struggles in the bubble or even in the last little while before the bubble but mm-hmm. I, i'm not sure how confident i am in milwaukee finding that kind of like mental fortitude to hang with this heat team yeah they're they're really relentless like i feel like the heat team they're very much a matchup based team where if they have a matchup that's favorable to them, they'll expose it. But there are teams where they'll run into weaknesses. The further down the playoffs you go, those intangibles become important. Like we saw, we're at a point where all the teams are good. All the teams have a shot at getting to the conference finals. Um, and it's just it's just a matter of leadership. It's a matter a matter of uh, physicality, intensity, like all of these things matter where the margin of error gets smaller and smaller. And yeah, the Heat team will definitely take advantage of that. And they also have the coaching styles are so different. Like you have Budenholzer, who's like, um, he believes his system to almost like a point of arrogance where he will not yeah. deviate it from it. Whereas yeah. Eric Spolstra is totally fine making game to game adjustments, play to play adjustments. Um, and that could also cause problems. So I, I think that's going to be a series definitely worth uh, worth watching. Those differences you mentioned which are very much, you know, the difference between uh, a Mike Budenholzer versus Nick Nurse mm-hmm. coaching matchup, right? In that Nurse, um, Spolstra and Nurse are both the kind of guys, like you mentioned, that they will hunt those advantages and they will make adjustments, not just game to game, but quarter to quarter, possession to possession if they have to. You know, Eric Spolster is the kind of guy where like Kendrick Nunn might be in his rotation, an important piece of it. And then if he has to go away from him for six games, as you know, it has been the case in, in the Pacers series, four games, but you know what I mean? He, he'll he do that. Like he will very gladly make those kinds of decisions on a matchup by matchup basis. And Budenholzer is not that guy. Yeah, he will play 11 guys in the first quarter if he has to. (laughs) He'll he'll play Giannis 31 minutes and 48 seconds and like an eliminate if he has to. So yeah, I think, again, like I I don't want to be guilty of reading too much into like small sample size when the Bucs were, you know, otherwise this 60 plus win juggernaut. But I think there are enough concerning signs here where even if maybe someone doesn't completely buy the fact Miami can knock them off, like 
I almost think it's naive at this point to think Miami won't at least give them like a hell of a series. And it's not coming out of nowhere. We, we saw the Bucks kind of crumble just a season ago. So it's not like yeah. we have like this uh, bias against them. It's, it's just legitimate questions. Also, like the Heat are playing with house money at this point. You know what I mean? Like the Bucks are the ones that have everything to prove. It's not up to the Heat. They just have to make it a fight. Like that pressure can get to the Milwaukee Bucks. The best game of the day on Monday was, without a doubt, what's looking like, honestly, the best series of the first round, and that's Rockets Thunder. Another kind of classic Rockets live by the three, die by the three meltdown in the second half. After I think they made their first eight threes of the second half and then missed a bunch in a row, let the Thunder back in the game. And if the Thunder are in the game in crunch time, as has been the case this year, chances are point guard Chris Paul is going to find a way to win that game for his team. And now we're in a 2-2 series. What have you seen from that matchup? And where do you think this is going in the next two or three games? Um, I think the absence of Westbrook made it much more interesting. I feel like he would have caused a lot of problems for the OKC defense otherwise. But Lou Dort on James Harden was really, really impressive. He has this thing where he can dominate the game on the defensive end. That was incredibly impressive. You could see James Harden trying to get the switch off of him continuously. Um, which would just take time off the shot clock. And the Rockets like to go and they like to hit the threes early in the shot clock. So I feel like they are the only team where they can hit eight threes and you won't even flinch because you know that the regression is coming soon. Any other team hitting eight threes coming out of the half would have been like ruining your confidence for the rest yeah. of the game and getting into your head. But when with the Rockets, if you just be relentless, keep getting to the rim, keep playing within your offense and you'll next thing you know it is a two-point game. And that's what OKC found themselves in. Uh, and Chris Paul was just so dominant in the fourth. And a lot of Rockets fans were just kind of seeing another, the same old story with Harden where he's completely wiped out by the fourth quarter and he's not doing the things that he was doing in the second quarter. So maybe uh, Westbrook would have alleviated some of that, but this could be a reoccurring problem for them. I don't think OKC takes this, but the Rockets are losing valuable time that they could be resting with Westbrook being injured, with Harden being so winded. So it'll it'll be interesting to see how this pans out, but I'm really happy for Chris Paul playing like a really good series. He was struggling the first couple games, but he's found his rhythm now. I'm honestly happy for that Thunder team as a whole. Like you mentioned Lou Dort and what a great story. He's been just... As a whole, I mean, like, no one expected anything from that OKC team. Uh, they were kind of this, like, mismatch roster that really was supposed to be a roster in transition as they transitioned to, like, this rebuild. And, you know, they end up with literally the best five-man lineup in the NBA over the last two years, rating-wise. They finish fifth in the West. I, I think they have a shot to beat any non-LA team in the West. I'm with you that I don't think they actually will beat the Rockets, but, like, I think they've proven more than capable. And, and they can do some funky stuff with their lineups, too, you know, like, whether it's the three-point guard lineup or... Uh, you know, we've seen it at times in this series and it's kind of worked for them. They'll go Gallo at the five and just surround them with relentless guards like CP3 and Schroeder and Dort on the defensive end and Shea Gilgis-Alexander. So yeah, they're they're a fun team. And I, I think it's just good for basketball that they've extended their season, you know, by a couple of games. Yeah, it's been a good story for them. And uh, I feel like they struck gold with that three-point guard lineup. Like we saw how effective a two-point guard lineup was for the Raptors. Like if you have point guards who are defensively decent, that excess playmaking and shooting on the court is so useful in today's NBA and it really scatters teams. And it's just, I feel like it gets the offense buzzing, especially in the fourth quarter. Yeah, and I'll say it again, I've been saying this for like months now and I know anyone that's listened probably is sick of me saying it, but the lineup of Chris Paul, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, Dennis Schroeder, Danilo Gallinari, and Steven Adams. If you take, I think it's like the 218 most used lineups over the last two seasons. So that includes the Warriors' death lineup last year. The best lineup over those two seasons is that Thunder oh, quintet. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, like they 
they uh, there was indications that they could hit a gear that I don't think a lot of people thought they could. And yeah, they've made a great series of it. And then in terms of the Rockets, like, you know, neither of us is, are Rockets fans. And it's frustrating for me sometimes watching them. Like, I could only imagine being a Rockets fan and watching that and the Jekyll and Hyde performance, not just game to game, but like six possessions to six yeah. possessions. Um, it, it's incredible. And then for Harden, like, I, you know, I'm of the mind for the most part that I don't think he's appreciated enough because I, I think people hate on his, like, the aesthetics of his game without really realizing, like, giving him his flowers for, like, what he's actually doing. You know, like, even the foul baiting stuff, it's like, okay, yeah, we might not like the way it looks, but at the end of the day, like, foul drawing, foul baiting is a skill in basketball, you yeah. know, like, it gets you easy points. But the one thing, and I think you kind of alluded to it, is like, I think we're just at a point where we have to ask, like, can he handle this type of burden over yeah. the course of 82 games and then the playoffs? Because the usage rate is insane. Even when he's not finishing a possession, he's dominating that possession for the yeah. most part. And and then on the defensive end, you know, people are starting to come around now and realizing he's actually a solid post defender and one-on-one, he's not bad because he's strong. Well, like areas of defense where he actually does kind of excel are the most tiring in a way because okay he's not moving in space but he's like defending bigger guys and having to hold his own so yeah I just don't know he might not be made for this over the course of the long haul and I don't even think that's that's not even a knock on him that's just like I don't know yeah. who would be made for this and he rarely misses games like this guy is regularly playing the, almost the entirety of the season so I feel like Westbrook has helped take some of that shoulder some of that burden but at the end of the day like they need more than just some kind of no-name face role players surrounding them. They don't look to really develop players and you're kind of seeing it's resulting in kind of just uninspired form of basketball. And if they don't, you know, get that chip either this season or next season, like they're going to have to start from scratch. You look at the contracts Harden and Westbrook are on, not that they necessarily want to move those guys, but, you know, that's one of those situations where like they they might want to start from scratch and I almost don't even know how they will because because of the Westbrook contract especially. Okay, so that's a perfect segue because speaking of teams that might have to start from scratch a lot sooner than they ever could have imagined, the Philadelphia 76ers <laughs> fired Brett Brown on Monday after a, I mean, you want to talk about uninspiring basketball. Like there, I know Ben Simmons was out, but you got Joel Embiid, Tobias Harris, and Al Horford making like $6 billion. Um, <laughs> you got Josh Richardson, you know, Matisse Tybels, and that like... I get that they were the underdog. That's fine. They didn't have to win the series, but there is enough talent there that you should not be getting swept in that kind of embarrassing fashion. Yeah. So what what are your thoughts on, on the Sixers, the firing of Brett Brown, and just that whole kind of conundrum in Philly? They were missing Ben Simmons, but I feel like they were missing Hayward after game one, was it? He went out with the, he's going to be out for the month. So yeah. I feel like um, scoring wise and even playmaking wise, um, Gordon Hayward averages something like five assists a game for them or four assists a game for them. So he's a main playmaker for the Celtics. And I just saw a Sixers team that put up absolutely no fight. Their reluctance to shoot. You have all of these players playing out of position who are just uncomfortable doing what they do, who are great players individually. Like, I don't even think Tobias Harris is as bad as we've been seeing him. Like, he's a solid scorer. He's a one-way player, but he's a solid scorer who I can think yep. can have a purpose on other teams. But um, they just put literally the worst collection of talents on one starting five, and it just did not work out. And I remember people talking about it early in the season where they're going to be this defensive juggernaut. And to me, I just saw a bunch of giant guys who are going to be very slow-footed dealing with all of these um, nifty point guards like your Kemba and with um, scorers like Tatum. So 
I saw a Celtics team that I feel like the first half of every single game, the Sixers would really try on defense and then they would just get discouraged after they saw Kemba hitting those off the dribble threes, Tatum hitting those off the dribble threes with absolutely no resistance. So it was such a horrible way for them to end the season. And we saw that uh, Brett Brown ended up fired. Um, And I think that he's kind of a scapegoat. Um, He's not the best coach. He's like kind of like a Nate McMillan to me where he's solid. He can manage put out, you know, some decent plays. He can optimize some of his players, you know, even if they don't want to shoot, he can still find a way for them to be effective on court. But at the end of the day, the team building was just horrendous. Like this is going to be an embarrassment for years, I think. And they're going to be trying to fix the mistakes of this front office for years to come. And you mentioned, you know, the fact that like the first half of basically every game, like it was a game. And then, you know, at some point the Sixers just kind of lost the the plot and lost the rope in all those games. And I think that kind of speaks to like, you know, whether it's Embiid or the other guys, whatever the hell is in the water there in that Philly organization, because it seems to inflict everyone on that team, except for when Jimmy Butler was there, but they, they're such front runners. Like Mm -hmm. the second they have to deal with in-game adversity, you know, like forget even the big picture adversity. I'm talking about like in-game adversity. The second they deal with that, you see their heads drop. You see the body language change. You see them like, and Embiid, you know, I think a lot of people love Embiid. I do too. I like, I admire the joy he plays with. You know, I don't ever want to knock him for that because I know a lot of people do. But, you know, at some point when you're the franchise guy and there's that much riding on your shoulders, I'm not saying don't play with joy, but like you can't be the guy who is playing with joy all willy-nilly and then it's like, the the opponent has one run in them and all of a sudden you're going to hang your head and kind of start trotting back on D and transition like that. You just can't do that as the franchise guy, especially with Simmons out. And, you know, those are things where like you mentioned the embarrassment that's coming for this team. It's, I feel like so many people have always wanted to find like one place to direct all the blame for what's gone wrong in Philly. You know, whether it was the way Colangelo mismanaged things uh, after taking over for Sam Hinkie, whether it's Embiid and Simmons themselves and the way maybe they haven't improved, whether it's Brett Brown, whether it's Elton Brand. And I think like what people should realize is to to take a team that had that much promise and plunge them to such depths, it it takes a little bit of everyone dropping yeah. the ball. Yeah, and team effort. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a team effort. And Elton Brand definitely didn't do this team any favors with the way he constructed the roster. He didn't do Brett Brown any favors in trying to create a functioning offense with the guys on this team. But Brown has to wear some of that too. As you mentioned, I don't think he's flawless. And, and Embiid and Simmons have to wear some of that too. You know, like Ben Simmons tweeted, the night uh yeah, the, the, so the, the, I'm like who does that know, after your team he, is swept like you know he, he he tweets watching my team get swept hurt and I don't ever want to feel that way again but to me it's like okay I'm I don't doubt that he's being genuine there but it's also very indicative of how just like this team it's all talk yeah like you know this to me is no different than Ben Simmons talking about his improved jumper in October or we're gonna see it again this summer too or this winter you know, rather like this awesome exactly happen again yeah, and and Embiid, it's the same thing. Like, how many times over the course of a season will we hear Embiid talk about uh, needing to improve his conditioning or the fact that he's going to be more focused and less, like, present on social media? And within a couple months, it's like we all realize it's all talk. It, it might just be, like, a throwaway tweet after his team was eliminated without him, but I think that whole, like, all talk, no action is very indicative of what's wrong with the Sixers from top to bottom. I'm, I'm putting everyone in there, like, front office, coaches, yeah, players, stars. Thing. Yeah, it's like the the culture of the team is just not there. Like when you're, I, I and I, I don't, I, I personally think the process worked to an extent. They did get two almost generational talents out of it, uh, which is not easy. 
but at the end of the day, I feel like so many years of losing, where's the culture of winning? Where's that competitiveness, that leadership? I think that's maybe why Joel Embiid enjoyed playing with Butler so much because he had someone who would help him keep his head up, you know, during those times where he gets discouraged. That Those were the times where, you know, maybe not every 25, 26 year old is ready to lead a team like that. Like even with the Raptors, like Pascal has Lowry to keep him in check to keep his head right in those moments where he could be feeling discouraged. So um, not a lot of teams have that luxury and maybe Embiid and Ben Simmons need to become that guy, but it's, it needs to start from scratch. They need to bring in, to me, they need to bring in like someone who knows how to manage personality, someone who demands respect and maybe less even about the X's and O's. Like I think they need a culture reset there. Yeah. I mean, I think Ty Lue's name has been um, brought up there and yeah. I think to be honest, I think that fits. And I yeah, think Lou is choice. like most LeBron coaches. He's not going to get enough credit for winning with LeBron. But I also think people forget that Ty Lue is one of the very few people that was willing to hold LeBron accountable. And, and LeBron has been on the record of, on, about that. And I think that's exactly what Simmons and Embiid need, you know? And I think that's one area where Brett Brown fell short. Like, how many years did Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid essentially operate as walking turnovers? And like, I never saw, and I don't know, I mean, you know, we're not there. Maybe Brett Brown is holding them accountable behind the scenes, but it's like at some point, man, there needs to be like some sort of accountability for your stars. And I don't know if Brett Brown brought that. I think Jimmy Butler did when he got yeah. there. And I think someone like Ty Lue would. So yeah, I mean, things need to change in Philly, but it's going to be tough because no one's, at least I don't think, taking that Harris or Horford contract. Yeah, whatever and happens, they're going to have to take on some liabilities in return to get rid exactly. of those contracts. So. Yeah, because if, yeah, if no one's taking those guys, like you said, they're going to have to attach um, assets to them mm -hmm. to ship them out. And if they don't want to do that, but they also don't want to break up Embiid and Simmons, so neither of them is going to. So it's like, what are you doing? Are you are you getting rid of Matisse Thibel or like seeing if someone will take Josh Richardson because he's on a decent contract and attaching picks to that? Like, I don't know. I feel like they they need big picture solutions but all they really have to work with are like short term kind of minor yeah you know yeah um I, I will say before we move on i think one of the my favorite tweets of the last couple of days since the sixers got eliminated and i think you actually retweeted it it was someone had quote tweeted ben simmons's tweet about not wanting to get swept and not wanting to feel this way but they quote tweeted it with the the gif of jimmy butler from a game when he was on the sixers motioning to ben simmons to shoot a three yeah. <laughs> and like mouth mouthing the words shoot a three and it was so perfect because you just see Ben Simmons tweet saying like he They're never wants to simple. feel this way again. Yeah. They're and then right above it. Then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nope. Right above it is is Jimmy Butler telling him to shoot a three. I thought it was awesome. Weird. It's weird how many of their problems would just be alleviated if he even became like a below average shooter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the thing, man. Like, no, you don't need to become Steph Curry, Ben Simmons. You literally just need to be able to keep defenses somewhat honest that you yeah. have some semblance of a professional basketball player's jumper yeah so they're not doubling and beat at every possession like it's it's ridiculous yeah there's a, a sixers writer for the philly voice his name's kyle newbeck and he, he wrote like a really really good piece about kind of all of their failures over the last years and there was really there was one good section on simmons and he summed it up really well in one part where he said you know like his head coach at the beginning of the year said he expected one made three-pointer a game from him and he couldn't even get one attempt you know and it's apparently he it, stopped shooting for like 25 games after that <laughs> like yeah, i think that's it, protest or something right like that's and, an and example of the culture issue 100 percent. 
100%, and it needs to change. Uh, a couple other teams that are already eliminated are the Pacers, who lost to Jimmy Butler's Heat. They were swept. And the Nets, who obviously were just decimated by injuries all year, and especially in the bubble, and were swept by the Raptors. So I, I think two very different futures for these teams. I mean, the Nets are obviously the the sexier kind of like marquee team now, given that they'll have KD and Kyrie. Where do you see their future? Are you as high on their future as some are, you know, assuming health for KD and Kyrie? Yeah. Um, do, do you worry about their future given some of the like internal whispers that have always been around those guys? Where do you yeah. like, is there a coach you think fits other than Greg Popovich? I thought the Greg Popovich rumors were really interesting. Like, that was kind of left field. And also, it kind of makes sense because he's probably nearing retirement. So maybe he wants, like, a last hurrah on a team full of stars and maybe, like, a really good shot at the chip. I don't know. And apparently KD is, like, a huge Popovich fan. So that would be super interesting. But um, this series was interesting from a Nets perspective. Um, we spoke to Christian from the New York Daily News on the podcast where he was kind of telling us about the future of the team and uh, who he thinks would remain. And he was very strongly adamant that Karis LeVert is going to be in the future starting five uh, with KD and Kyrie, which I thought was really interesting. I thought they'd opt to keep Dimwitty, but Karis is really, really impressive, uh, really poised. Um, I could see him fitting quite well on that team. And Perhaps like that's why we saw so many shooters just shooting light, lights out to show that they can be really good compliments to the two superstars coming to the team. So I personally think that they have a, perhaps a smaller window than th- than some think. Um, KD is what like 31, 32 years old already. He's coming off an injury. He might even need a season to just kind of get his feet wet and to find his rhythm again before he becomes his old self. So I do think that their championship window is actually shorter than some people think, but it's definitely there. I think it's shorter because you have teams like the Raptors, the Celtics, who are actually anticipating their best years ahead of them in maybe the next half decade. So it's um, an interesting dynamic. I feel like top of the East has become ridiculous and the Nets are just going to add to that. I'm really excited to see how they look coming back. And if they uh, start DeAndre Jordan, like I'm really confused about that choice. Like Jared Allen's awesome. He's an, he's going to be surrounded by shooters. He's a great defender. He's um, really just athletic and bouncy and willing to go for those blocks, even if he gets dunked on. So I think that they should maybe look at starting him instead of DeAndre Jordan. But that's the only question I really have about their future. Yeah, no, and I'm glad you brought that up because to me, the whole DeAndre Jordan, Jared Allen thing kind of speaks to the like differing of opinions or perceptions of the whole KD Kyrie thing. And look, I like I don't think anyone on the planet doubts either one of those guys' basketball abilities, and and KD especially. Like you know, Kyrie is obviously individually brilliant, but I think everyone agrees like KD's health is the key to whether you know they're a legitimate championship contender when they get back. Like if KD is even close to being KD. And he's got Kyrie as a sidekick and a deep roster around him. Like, that's a contender. No brainer. But in terms of like the internal stuff, you know, there was the rumors at the time when the Nets and Kenny Atkinson did the whole consciously uncouple thing, like Gwyneth Paltrow and Chris Martin, that KD and Kyrie and DeAndre Jordan had a hand in it. And Jackie McMullen from ESPN actually wrote a piece uh, the night the Nets were eliminated by the Raptors about their future and reiterated about sources saying this, like that her sources do say that uh, DeAndre Jordan... KD and Kyrie weren't happy about the fact that Atkinson wanted to start Allen over DeAndre Jordan. Like, I get it. They're friends, you know, like we're all humans. We have biases to friends. But at the same time, what what makes me laugh about it is like, okay, they on one hand want, you know, someone like Greg Popovich to come in, for example. Katie's a big Popovich guy. What's like, he think Popovich is going to do? <laughs> ex- exactly, right? Like, that's that's the thing. It's like, okay, you're going to bring in like one of the most genius basketball minds of all time 
to come in. And what do you think? You're going to tell Greg Popovich, oh, but by the way, when you take this job, like DeAndre has to start. And so those are the things that like, you know, and, and obviously KD and Kyrie aren't the only stars in the league that are like that. But, yeah. you, you know, they they definitely from a reputation standpoint are near the top of that list. And, and things like that just kind of perplex me because it's like, what? okay, I get your caping for your friend, but also it's going to like impede your ability to win. Yeah. And, and if you want a top-notch coach, he's not going to agree with that opinion. So like, what, like, where do they go? Yeah. I, if I was pop, I'd come in and make like Kyrie the sixth man just to flex a little, <laughs> like just to really assert your dominance there. Maybe sp- make him spend half the season on the bench. <laughs> yeah. Cause what are they um, going to say? This is like one of the greatest coaches in NBA history. So, you know, it's, it's just, it's really odd. Like if they're serious about winning, I, I honestly don't even know if they're serious about winning. Like, for all we know, like, Kyrie and Katie just might want to be on a team together and spend the rest of their NBA careers on the same team, like, they're best friends. So perhaps that's all they want. Perhaps they just want to see their friends at work, and that's also a legitimate <laughs> reason for, yeah. you know, like, yeah. that honestly could all be it. They have their rings, to be honest. So Yeah, I know it. It's true. I mean, KD's got his finals MVPs too. And, you know, whatever people feel about both those guys, like the NBA is better with both of them in it. And Kyrie's a good example of that. Like obviously off the court, he's done tremendous work um, during, whether it's the donation, I think he was 323,000 that he donated on his 28th birthday to like food relief during the the midst of the pandemic or, you know, the great off-court work he's done in the fight for social justice and also giving young players a voice that that maybe thought they didn't have one. And, and that some fund of those... he created for the WNBA players for any Absolutely. player who wants to opt out was just amazing. Like he was yeah. hit for hit as soon as the um, NBA was coming back. Absolutely. And I think, um, so all of that is obviously important and more important than anything he does basketball-wise. And then, yeah, basketball-wise, I just, you know, he's a brilliant individual player, regardless of how you think he affects team performance like the guy's just a treat to watch and and even some of the stuff that you know myself and others have obviously ripped him for like the anti-science stuff and the flatter stuff as asinine as i think it is i do think his presence it like genuinely makes the nba more interesting kd obviously we know everything about him like i i hope they get back to it's gonna be a fun season with both of them back in the nba it's gonna be very very entertaining regardless of what happens and you mentioned the top of the East too. Like, could you imagine the Nets being healthy with both those guys? The Raptors and the Celtics uh, just going forward with what they have, even if they don't make any kind yeah, of splash. They'll still be like teams that you don't want to really see in the playoffs. <laughs> the Heat, you know, with their core and then with max cap space coming up pretty soon in a summer with a lot of like, that's already four teams right there. And we haven't touched on what might be in Philly's future. Like they still have two stars like that. Or Milwaukee's future. If they were oh my God. Out. I haven't even, like, yeah. That's like I can't believe I didn't six just... potential Eastern Conference contenders right there. Yeah. yeah. that you, We could be looking at a case in the East. Uh, you could be a first round out or you could be a championship team. And there's like very thin margins in between. All right, so I almost forgot about the the other team that was eliminated, and um, Joe Wolfond would never let me forget it because uh, it's his Indiana Pacers. But the Pacers were also eliminated. I mean, they're just we talk about how much more interesting the NBA is with guys like Kyrie in it. No offense to the Pacers or any Indiana fans watching. I don't know how many people are thinking the NBA is more interesting with this team in it, but nevertheless, <laughs> nevertheless, they they were an inspiring bunch, and I think Nate McMillan's a solid coach. I, I don't know if he is the ultimate playoff coach, but I think he does maximize his, his rosters for the most part in the regular season. We mentioned those six teams in the East, like the Pacers are right there with, with their performance in the regular season. But I don't know if they really have the goods to be like a playoff contender. Like this yeah. is what, four, four years in a row now, one and done. Yeah. I'm Oladipo, First of all, Oladipo doesn't really look right. 
yeah. to be honest. Like he just seems mentally and physically not at the, you know, the two-way dominant player that we saw uh, a couple of years back. I-, I feel like Sabonis, Miles Turner, those are players that kind of set a ceiling for a team, even though Sabonis is in- incredibly talented. I feel like there's a role for him out there. But as like the second best player on his team, I'm not too sure. Um, but yeah, I, I they, the playoffs for them, they kind of remind me of shades of maybe 2017 Raptors or something where there's a ceiling on this team. Their coaching is probably uh, inadequate for the playoffs and someone who's not willing to make adjustments, someone who has a team doing ISOs the entire fourth quarter, watching their lead dwindle away. And they attempt, I think, the least amount of threes in the NBA. Like they, they play kind of a dated style of basketball, maybe something that would have worked three years ago. But today they don't really play that inspired form of basketball that um, I think they have the potential to play with their personnel. I feel like Brogdon right now looked like their best player <laughs> during that series. Um, I feel like they should emphasize that Brogdon, uh, Brogdon um, Oladipo backcourt, perhaps. I, I Yo, Bucks, that, but- Bucks fans, plug your ears. Malcolm Brogdon <laughs> was incredible <laughs> in that so sweep. Good. And I will never stop trolling the fact that the Bucks let him walk for, let's be honest, financial reasons. Yeah, um, I feel like he would have taken the Bucks over the top this season. They would have been Agreed. absolute favorites to win the entire championship. Uh, but he was incredible for the series. Um, I feel like if they emphasize that backcourt with Oladipo and Brogdon, they have something there. But it's going to require getting rid of their coach. I think... Weirdly enough, I think Kenny Atkinson will be a fit for them because he's someone who knows how to maximize the talent he has. And he's someone who knows how to have his players playing modern basketball. Like that Nets team where D'Angelo Russell was their best player was still a team that would give a fight because how much they spam threes because of um, their activity. I feel like he might actually be an interesting fit for them. They need to kind of go into the future right now because they're playing a style that doesn't really work in 2020. And we saw how ineffective it was against a modern team like the Miami Heat. Yeah, Atkinson, actually, I didn't think of it, but that's a really good connection for the Pacers because you mentioned his like modern style of ball. Even before the, the Nets got good again, like when they were in that period when they were trash because they just didn't have the personnel they played a smart brand of basketball. Like offensively, they, you know, they took threes and tried to get to the rim. And then they, on the defensive end, they tried to limit those shots. So like they played a really smart brand of two-way basketball under Atkinson, even before the results were there. And, and yeah, I think that would actually be a really interesting fit if the Pacers do get rid of McMillan. The funny thing with the Pacers, unless you're a Pacers fan, and I tweeted this and got a lot of heat from Pacers fans I did not know existed, but Like, you know, we always talk about uh, 82-game players and 16-game players. And now we're starting to talk about 82-game coaches and 16-game coaches. And like Budenholzer, for example, is a guy that's been talked a lot about. I was thinking about it, uh, watching game four of Pacers Heat, and then I tweeted it. But to me, at least in my lifetime, I think the Pacers might be the ultimate 82-game franchise. In my life, I think, so I'm only 31. And out of my 31 years, the Pacers, I think, have made the playoffs 25 or 26 times. And in that time, I think I can maybe count like three or four where I've actually gone into any of those playoffs thinking like, oh yeah, they might make some noise. Like for the most part, they are just this consistent regular season team that you can almost pencil in for the playoffs no matter who their personnel is. Like they find a way to overachieve if they need to. I think they have to evaluate uh, what they want. Like you need to take those risks in order to take yourself over the edge. Like are they comfortable just filling those seats during the regular season or do they want to bring a championship to Indiana? Or if they, do they want to just have at least that run that people can look back on and build off of? You know what I mean? Like that, that kind of deep run, I feel like could be really beneficial in taking a player like Victor Oladipo over the edge into actual like superstardom or 
perhaps just like that fringe superstardom, you know? So I, I feel like people kind of undersell how important it is to get those deep playoff runs for your young player. We saw how reformative it was for a player like Fred Van Vliet. Like Fred Van Vliet was an iffy backup point guard, you know, prior to the finals. And now he's a bona fide top point guard in the NBA and his trajectory is still going upward. And I feel like that can all hinge on that deep playoff run that just kind of boosted his confidence and confidence and belief in himself. So I just want to see them modernize and take risks. Like who cares if you have a year where something goes wrong and you, you know, you dip out of the playoffs or something, they still are in a good spot. I feel like they don't have crazy contracts. They have a collection of really solid role players that can be traded. So I think they're in a good place and it's just about whether they take that risk. Like, now they are, are they're, they're, the risk they have is that they're at risk of losing Oladipo, honestly, because yeah. he faced a Heat team that he may actually go to who play a brand of basketball that I think would suit him better. So it's a yeah. very interesting situation. Yeah, and there like there were the whispers even before the bubble restart, remember, where I believe was clear to play, but he wasn't sure if he was like physically yeah. ready to play. And then whispers started coming out about like some tension there. And, and there were parts... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. Shades of Kawhi in San Antonio. And, you know, a lot of times, not that people should believe everything they hear, obviously, from sports media and rumors, because a lot of it does end up amounting to nothing. But I feel like a lot of times when there's rumblings like that of kind of star unhappiness, usually where there's smoke, there's fire. Yeah, it's weird because every time these rumors about stars being unhappy come out, we're always reminded like, oh, you know, it's just it's gossip, blah, blah. blah. But when has it ever been wrong? I feel like every single time it turns out yeah. like that there was something there. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, you mentioned like the, the deep playoff runs that maybe Indiana needs. Like, you know, they had a couple of those, obviously, in the Paul George years with when Roy Hibbert was actually a thing. And, and you brought up the good question of like, what do the Pacers want? And, you know, for any of our listeners who don't remember this, Paul George just not that long ago. Uh, I believe was on record as saying that when he was with Indiana, the thing that forced him to want out was that, I think he said it was a power forward. Do you remember this? It was like a few months ago. Paul George said like the best power forward in the game wanted to play in Indiana. And he brought this to the front office. The front office, he claims, I mean, I don't know how believable, but he claims, told him, you know, like the Pacers don't operate that way because they're a small market franchise. And Paul George claims that's what spurred him to want out. Now, who knows? People were kind of connecting the dots that it might have been Blake Griffin, like just timing wise. I feel like that might have been the top power forward he was talking about at the time. But yeah, that's just like, if you're a star player, requests a player, I feel like you have to at least show the effort that you're trying to surround them with the best talent possible. Because at the end of the day, these are guys who are dedicating their lives to this craft. They want at least a shot. They don't want to be handed a ring, but they want a shot at least at proving themselves. And if you can't do that, what's stopping them from going elsewhere where they can actually achieve that? What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download The Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. Paul George has gone elsewhere, obviously, a couple times now. Uh, and and he's now in L.A. where, uh, yeah, not playoff Pete. This guy, I mean, look, I, I like, I've always been a George fan. Like, I, I think he's a phenomenal player. And I think he's obviously better than the way he has performed in this series. But, oh, my God, he could not get anywhere. Like, th- 
forget a star not being able to be worse than this. Like an average NBA player. We've asked have- questions like, "What's wrong with so and so? This role player?" <laughs> like, yeah, it, it exactly. Was, someone pointed it out. I thought he was just having a bad run. But someone pointed out that the last four years, Paul George has been a negative on the court in the playoffs. Like, yep. if even if your team is bad and you're playing well, you're still going to be a net positive on the floor, even in a loss. So the fact that Kyle Lowry, yeah, <laughs> that's like his signature. He'll find a way to be a positive in a twenty point loss. But Paul George has consistently struggled the last four years, and honestly, like I'm starting to think it's like I don't, I don't, I don't want to psychoanalyze him or anything because I don't know him, but I feel like all his teammates are kind of commenting on his mental state where they're saying that, you know, you, he needs to cut out, you know, the social media, but Lodge Michael Green recently said that. Yeah. Uh, and that's like kind of worrying from a star player. Paul George is way better than this. We know this. Like Paul George is just, you know, perhaps only second to Kawhi and Giannis at, in terms of two-way dominance. Like he has those regular MVP candidate months every single season. Um, so I know that he's better than this. So and this is versus the worst defense in the NBA, perhaps, in the Mavs. You know what I mean? Like, you would think he'd be eating against a Seth Curry or something. But this guy is getting just washed, finding himself on his hands and knees, like, after crossovers. Like, it's, it was, it's just really, really bad. And that Mavs series has just gotten a lot more interesting with Paul George mentally out of it. Because Luka Doncic right now, he's on. Like, he, he smells the blood in the water. That's how I feel right now. Yeah, I wrote about Luka's performance on Sunday night. I know people like don't want to jump and, and anoint guys too quickly. I'm well aware he's a 21 year old sophomore, but I'm sorry, like this guy. I know Paul Pierce had the truth nickname, but Luka Doncic is the friggin' truth. There are certain playoff performances every era, every generation of fans will remember. You know, and way back in the day, maybe it was like MJ 63 in a loss. Or um, Isaiah Thomas, for anyone that is, I guess, older than us even, but hopping his way to a huge finals performance on a sprained ankle. You know, maybe for our generation, it's like LeBron against the Pistons or LeBron against the Celtics when he made that face, you know, in game six. Like there, there are these certain playoff performances, no matter the round, win or lose, that just embed themselves in your mind. And that Doncic performance on Sunday on a bum ankle without the team's second best player, down 21 to a championship contender, Leonard going, on him. <laughs> going shot for shot with Kawhi freaking Leonard and then to end it the way he did with Mike Breen giving him the double bang like just everything about that performance is the kind of thing like years from now we'll be like you know Doncic was good already but that might have been the day when he like crashed through that door of like okay this guy's like all-time good and he might be that good already like he might be maybe not championship level best but like, I don't know maybe he is maybe he, he might is. Be. like honestly I think the skill set is there maybe perhaps he just needs to um gain that leadership quality that we were talking about which will just come from reps yeah. and years but this is a guy I've, I've been saying this since like mid-season where i can see the mavs already they're the most efficient offense in nba history like i can see this mavs team becoming a perennial finals contender for the west like just representing the west for the next perhaps on and off for the next decade like that's how he's only 21 yeah. you know yeah. what i mean and he seems like a guy who wants to do the dirk thing where he stays there the rest of his career and the mavs have already proven that they can build and get those role players that will complement him beautifully so i think that the, that's a team that's just doing everything right developing their role players those they have all those sparks off the bench like trey burke was just out yeah. of his mind 
mind. Like I, I was surprised, and he's so that's someone the Sixers like go to. So yeah. it was even hard to see like just him crossing over Kawhi and Paul George and just getting his teammates looks. Like he was so impressive, uh, and Seth Curry to kindly fi- finally fi- finding his identity, you know, outside of his brother's shadow as yeah. a solid role player. But yeah, they're just doing everything right, and you know, I, I yeah, they're going to be representing the West after this era of perhaps um, the LA teams because it is going to be a short era. I don't think it's going to last too long beyond maybe three years or so. Yeah, they're going to be that representative for the West. Yeah, shout out Trey Burke first of all because when the uh, when the when the Mavs added him before the bubble. Um, Wolfon and I wrote a piece about just like kind of going over all the transactions to catch people up. And I think I literally wrote about Burke, like, like whatever, like the the Mavs just need someone who can do do a little bit of ball handling, maybe shoot once in a while, give them like five minutes off the bench. And now this guy's just like a key, a key player in a two, two series against a championship contender. So shout out Trey Burke. And yeah, you mentioned it like, you know, Doncic obviously is on his rookie scale contract. They they've got him under control for a long time. Porzingis is locked up long-term. Um, Carlisle is just an absolute like master tactician Underrated coach. and like, and he's coaching circles around Doc Rivers in oh this series. By no one's talking about that part of it. Like Doc Rivers has literally every tool in his arsenal right now. And he's just been so unimpressive. I, I just want to talk about the last play of that game yeah. with the game winner. You're not a fan <laughs> of Reggie Jackson on, on... <laughs> 3.7 seconds on the clock. Doncic is there. He does not have time to get off a shot if you just blitz him. Like, I don't understand why they didn't just send, like, two players towards him to give him issues. Like, at least get a contested shot. Like, he got that clean step back. All the space in the world. I was honestly shocked by that defensive play call. Like, that was just bad coaching on display right there. And Doc is just being outcoached. Carlisle, he's underrated, man, because he doesn't have the best talent to work with all the time. So people underrate him like that. But he's been really impressive, and he's going to take this team far. You have Kawhi Leonard. Why are you switching to a like? I don't know. There, there. So much of the end of that game is just so perplexing. And then, yeah. In in terms of George, like you mentioned, the you know maybe some of like the emotional stuff, like the, the mental stuff going on there, that would obviously be concerning based on some of his teammates' comments and you know him hopping on social media after game two or whatever it was, game one. I don't even remember now to say. Yeah. To, to say that he doesn't care what people think. Like, I'll say this. Usually, if someone hops on social media to put out to the rest of the world that they don't care what the rest of the world thinks, that's usually a good indication that they might care what the rest of the world thinks a little too much, you know? And I think he disabled comments on it. So he 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 puts I, up a post like I don't care what you think. Also, though, I'm not going to let you comment on this. Like, and I don't know, but I feel like maybe Pat Bev's absence is kind of being underrated because. Right now, we know Kawhi is not the most vocal leader. Like, And I don't know who that guy is for the Clippers. And I feel like perhaps Pat Bev might be the nearest. He's very vocal. He's very confident in himself. And he seems to always be in their ear throughout the game. And I, I, I think they're kind of missing that right now, a guy like that. So, And he's not scheduled to play today, I don't think. So this is going to yeah. really get interesting. And and also, too, like the with the George stuff, you know, like I don't want to necessarily connect dots that we don't know are connected. But Doc Rivers... His words, his choice words for his team after game four was that he thinks they were emotionally weak. He didn't say, you know, he didn't even say mentally. He didn't say physically. He didn't like, he specifically said he thinks they were emotionally weak. And then you connect that with some of the stuff Paul George has been saying, some of the stuff his teammates have been saying. And it's, it is hard not to draw those connections. 
And for your coach to say that, like, what a blow to your yeah. confidence. Like, I feel like that can do more damage than good, honestly. Yeah. Because, you know, we like when players slump, I feel like you really have to just kind of surround them with confidence and with support in order to feel as though that nothing they do is going to be scrutinized. Just be yourself and keep shooting. Like we saw it with, for example, um, with the Bucks, Middleton's really struggling. And according to um, a couple of people who covered the Bucks, Giannis went up to him and said, I want you to keep shooting. I don't care if it goes in or not. Just keep shooting till your arms fall off. I wonder who's telling that to Paul George. Like, is anyone? All I yeah. see is um, Kawhi refusing to pass to him. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's all we're getting. Yeah, and, and for Doc Rivers too, it's probably a little jarring because, you know, he hasn't coached a true contender in a few years, right? But like, you know, those Clippers teams, I think were like maybe mentally weak in a certain way and they would fold. But I don't necessarily, like... If it makes sense, I think there's you can be mentally weak, but not necessarily emotionally weak, if that makes sense. And I feel like when you have Chris Paul on your team, emotionally, there's still like, uh, okay, like we've got... Oh, yeah, like, yeah. You're in a good you know? place, at least. Yeah, exactly. Even Chris Paul, is he's the ultimate leader, you know? So exactly. Perhaps they might have folded under pressure, which I feel like is different than exactly. losing all confidence in your shot throughout the entire game. <laughs> yeah. Paul George, he needs to figure it out because they're not going far without... They're going to be getting into perhaps a, a Western Conference Finals with a LeBron James, who's Zero Doc 30, mentally on, um, an AD who is a matchup nightmare for anybody. Especially um, the Clippers. Yeah, exactly. Like, he's bigger than their their center. You know what I mean? So, yeah. you gotta be yeah. ready. Yeah. Doc Rivers never had to worry about uh, his teams being emotionally weak when he had Chris Paul or when he had those Ubuntu Celtics. Like, that, you know, like <laughs> the KG, like, say what you oh, will yeah. about that Celtics team, but that, Doc Rivers was never, ever sleepless at night because he was worried about whether that team was emotionally strong enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then he had, like, a bunch of aging superstars, you know, so they, they're, they've seen it all, you know what I mean? But yeah. now you're dealing with guys in their prime who might be a little iffy, a little sensitive, so interesting um, dynamic. Before I let you go, because I've actually taken more of your time than I said I would, I do want to get your thoughts on uh, Rap Celtics, but before I do that, I actually wanted to read out, there was a tweet, because we were talking about Doncic and just how incredible he's been. So, so someone had tweeted about, just like a random Twitter interview, user saying that Doncic is slower than Christmas and is unguardable saying like he basically can't understand how this guy who's so slow is this unguardable and I I thought it was really interesting and it just kind of came across my feed before we recorded Spencer Dinwiddie of all people quote tweeted that and and tweeted this he said change of pace has always been more effective than pace in general if I see something every time eventually I can stop it if Mm -hmm. the rhythm and the cadence is constantly changing what are you supposed to dance to and honestly, beautifully like, put. Yeah, ex- yeah. That's why I, I wanted to I wanted to read it out because uh, it was one of those tweets that like really hangs with you. And you think about it. First of all, it's cool that it came from an NBA peer and a guy who can like explain it like that in a way that most of the people being paid to be analysts right now, whether former players or not, yeah, could never do. Sorry of um, analysts uh, talking about uh, Luca in the draft where they they were like, I don't even know if this guy's lottery. Like these are the people who are paid to cover this. Oh man. It's, it's unbelievable. But yeah, so I I did want to point that tweet out because I think it's like Spencer Dinwiddie really captured it in a really cool way. Um, To look into journalism. (laughs) For real. Right. All right. So yeah, like I said, before I let you go, I did want to get your take on Raptor. Celtics because you know through following you I, I've seen some of your tweets about it I think you've you've mentioned some really interesting things I saw you tweeting uh, a freeze frame of Marc Gasol defending a Celtics pick and roll and and kind of thinking out loud about the different ways the Raptors can mm-hmm. defend the Celtics so yeah what what are your thoughts in that series honestly I feel as though like I, I don't like predicting series like I, I rarely ever do that because I feel like um there's just too many variables and factors that always interfere and it's rarely ever right. It's always a coin flip when it comes to like second rounds and further. But with the Celtics team, I feel like the Raptors caught a huge break with Hayward being out. You know, I hope he has a speedy recovery. 
um, now they would have to start smart. And I feel like that takes away a bunch of their versatility because the Celtics are one of the most versatile teams in the league with their wings. Now they've lost a major key. It's going to be far more interesting now. I feel like the Raptors have more of a chance, I will say, than before. I feel like before it would have been a six or seven game toss up between either team. Now I feel like they can, uh, with smart coaching and execution, they can um, take this series perhaps. I feel like it's good. There's going to be an emphasis on the backcourt defensively this series because you see Tatum and Kemba operate on the perimeter so much. But the Raptors have retained that versatility because it seems that Kyle is going to play. He, I have a feeling he's going to miss game one, but I feel like he's going to play the series. It's going to be really interesting. The Celtics love to screen a gazillion times to get Tatum a wide open red carpet to the rim to get uh, Kemba those pull-up threes. So I feel like the Raptors were given the opportunity in that net series to find some offensive chemistry because weirdly enough versus a bad defense you can kind of find your teammates you can find that rhythm they have not been healthy all year I feel like at all times they were missing a major um, offensive contributor like Marc Gasol is so important to the offense in my opinion and he missed so much of the season Kyle Lowry missed time Pascal Siakam missed like a month so um, for them all to be present I feel like that the Raptors are actually more likely a top seven offense perhaps than the number 12 or whatever that we see i feel like they are um far more competitive offensively than their numbers would reveal but um, it's going to be a co- it's going to be a coaching master class it's nick nurse versus brad stevens i feel like ultimately it's going to come down to nick nurse versus brad stevens yeah. sorry uh it's all going to come down to execution and coaching Big series for uh, people who are fans of khaki pants, the Nick Nurse, uh, Brad Stevens <laughs> <laughs> matchup. Yeah, look, I think the Hayward injury is is really big for them in this matchup. You know, Hayward had a, a quietly really nice season for them and is one of, you know, this just like bevy of pull-up shot creators that the Celtics have. And that would have been desperately needed against a Raptors team that can take away your number one option, can take away your number two option and put so much pressure on your offense to to make a shot under pressure. And, you know, when you've got Jason Tatum and Kemba Walker and Jalen Brown and Gordon Hayward, like those are some, those are four pretty nice options to have to be that guy that can get that shot off for you against that pressure defense. And you take one of those options away against the defense that's going to take away options. Like they just, I thought the Celtics, I still would have picked the Raptors, both teams are at full health, but I really thought it was going to be like a barn burner of, of a seven game series, six or seven games. And, and I think, the it Celtics manageable now. I feel like the Raptors yeah. defense will be stressed a little less now because <laughs> yeah. now they have the option of helping off a smart to do that with a Hayward. But exactly. Now, uh, you can perhaps put Lowry on smart and put OG on Tatum, which they couldn't do before. Um, so I feel like this actually lines up a little better for them. So uh, we'll see how it turns out. I think with Hayward out and if Lowry's, I mean, that's obviously a big question mark. Like we don't know, like we know Kyle is willing to play through pain and if it's a pain tolerance thing, he'll play, but you know, Kyle Lowry's at 60% instead of hundred percent. That obviously does change things. But I do think if Kyle's anywhere close to hundred percent and, and with Hayward out, I, I don't think this will be as competitive as it could have been. I still think the Celtics are good enough, deep enough, well coached enough, obviously that like it, it'll still be a good series, but I don't know if it's going to be quite the like seven game barn burner. I once envisioned it being. Yeah, I agree. All right, Yasmin, thank you so much for joining me today. And uh, yeah, no, no problem. Uh, Like I said, you've been a great follow on Twitter and and anyone who is into basketball insights, pop culture insights, life insights, follow Yasmin at Carmelo Drama. Listen to the Dishes and Dimes podcast. Read the Neon Playbook. Do it all. Yasmin, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. All right, for Yasmin Tuale, for Joe Wolfon, wherever he is celebrating his anniversary and crying over the Pacers, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the Rock.